2, Seven Heads, Ten Horns, with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Welcome back to Seven Heads, Ten Horns, the internet's only internet history of the devil. Uh, Klaus Yoder here. It is marvelous to be back speaking to you all. We've missed having these conversations. It's, I, what can I say? It's been, life has happened. I don't know, like between work, illness, everything. Um, but I'm back with you right now and it's it's it feels fantastic. What I want to do today is since it's been a while and even though I'm not podcasting like the Faust devil brain content machine keeps like churning out connections and, and ideas and I, and I keep having to teach. Um, I have a lot of things to work through. This is sort of a, a grab bag, but I think it's going to be more synthetic and more streamlined than grab bag. The words grab bag might suggest. Um, so I've been teaching and thinking about Faust for the last month or two. And in preparing for teaching Christopher Marlowe's Tragical History of Dr. Faustus, I was like brushing up on the idea of the historical Dr. Faust, the idea that there was such a guy who lived in 16th or maybe 14th or 15th century Germany who was a necromancer and a sorcerer and a natural philosopher who inspired all these stories. And as I was like trying to prepare to speak about that reality, I, I came across a really interesting work uh, from 2019, The Faust Tales of Christoph Rosshirt, a critical edition edited by J.M. Vanderlan, a scholar at, let me see, where is J.M. at uh, Illinois State University in the German department. So I was looking at that, and a lot of the information you get about the real historical Faust is, is kind of sketchy. And apparently, over the last century at least, historians and folklorists have debated whether Dr. Faustus or Dr. Faust was like a historical person or not. So the name or similar names crop up in numerous places from the university registrar at Heidelberg to the recorded dinnertime conversations of Martin Luther the uh, Tischwaden. Um, and there's also like these published works of magic, grimoires that are attributed to some Faust or another. There, there, so there seems to be references to this person. And yet when you drill down to it, and I'm relying on Vanderland's reflections in his, his edition of this, of this uh, set of Faust tales about this as, a, as a, someone who's like a, a Faust scholar, what you, what you start to see is you start to chase down the leads is that no one who actually talks about Faust has ever had a direct experience. There are like these near misses, reported near misses, or, or stories are passed on at second hand. Um, and that's most like centrally in in the in works attributed to Philip Melanchthon, a Protestant reformer at Wittenberg, as well as Martin Luther. Um, there's all kinds of contradictions in the record when it comes to first names. We have Johann, Georg, Jorg, Heinrich, Sibelicus, Faustus Minor, etc. The places of birth that are attributed to this person don't match up. Something that I found really like significant is that there's actually, unlike other 
sorcerers and magicians and natural scientists of the period, there's no known assistant or familiar to to sort of vouch for Faust's career. Usually there are people who were like disciples of these kinds of people who would be like, yeah, like this is what, you know, Paracelsus taught or whatever. It's different strands of the legend seem to tie him to the 14th century while others tie him to the 16th century. And we also have this confusion where portrayals of Faust from the early modern period also really dovetail with the ancient patristic St. Augustine's debates with the Manichaean by the name of Faust in Contra Faustum from the year 400. So it's all mixed up. And one of the ways that Vanderland sort of finishes up his reflections on the shoddiness of the reliability, like just like epistemologically, we cannot like come up with a reliable set of transmission chain of like chain of transmission or chain of traditions that would lead us to believe that there actually is such a person that it's a lot of this is like hearsay and innuendo he ends his his essay on this by sort of turning to the first big faust book which is the one i began this series with which is the historia von dr johann and fausten which was published in frankfurt in 1587 and he zeroes in on the early modern idea of history in, in the 16th century context, which means something a little different than it does today. It doesn't mean a claim to documented evidence um, that sort of is going to represent a realistic portrayal of what happened. It's more of like a novelistic narrative that makes a certain claim to truth. And so he's saying like that's the kind of historical truth value that we need to recover from Faust. That we learn something about the cultural, moral, political, religious preoccupations and narratives from generations of storytellers from early modernity to modernity. And like, there's enough truth and value in that. We don't need to be like, he was a real guy. Like, this isn't the quest of historical Jesus here. Like, we don't need to be like, to, to fool ourselves into thinking that Faust was an actual person. Faust was an idea that comes to life in all this literature. He was a story that he was a legend. And and I think like I take Vanderland's point that this is this is what we need to take up and we need to be less preoccupied with the really shaky historical evidence for the existence of a real Dr. Faust. Okay, so we're if we're over the idea that Faust was a historical figure and we're more invested in Faust as a symbol or an allegory, then like what is he a symbol or allegory for? By coincidence, in my teaching, I was working with the an essay by the uh, a giant of Islamic studies, Syed Hossein Nasser, the Iranian perennialist and just sort of total like just just like a, a really important figure in Islamic studies in the United States and abroad. He has this essay from the late 80s or the early 90s, Islam and the Environmental Crisis. And in this essay, Nasser talks about how climate change is obviously like really a huge problem across the Muslim world as it is across the rest of the world. And he wants to talk about how Islam has certain spiritual and political resources for responding to it. And he contrasts this approach to the Western technological way of being, 
which he says has been seduced by, this is a quote, the forbidden fruit of Faustian science. And so if Faust is a symbol or allegory for something, it is very frequently for science, for the enlightenment, for the massive productive power that were unleashed in modernity. This is, and, and, and Nasser associates this with a satanic aspect of the Western tradition. He writes, Western technology is able to possess a power of destruction which is truly satanic in the sense that Satan is the ape of God. For such a human type wields a godlike but destructive dominion over the earth. Okay, so this also links with a number of other intellectual figures. Um, Martin Heidegger in the 1950s writes the question concerning technology and sees in Western metaphysics since turned to Christianity, basically, a paradigm of domination and exploitation of, of, of using resource, using the world and all being as a resource to be mined for efficiency and productivity and the a sort of impoverishment of, of being. Um, and we'll t- we're going to talk more about Heidegger later. I'm not letting him get off the hook with just that. There's also the historian Lynn White Jr.'s famous essay, The Historical Roots of, of Our Ecological Crisis, in which White blames Western Christianity for a model of humanity, a theological anthropology that puts humanity at the top of the created hierarchy and allows nature to be exploited and dominated. Nasser doesn't name White's essay, but he disagrees, maybe maybe not completely, but he disagrees in an important way. He doesn't think it's Christianity's fault. And Nasser is a perennialist philosopher. He is allied with other perennialists who see in the world's religions a commonalities. There's 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 specificities, but also that they are united in their metaphysical orientation towards transcendence and morality and and the whole set of other things. And so he actually is not invested in saying it's Christianity's fault. He will say that Western Christianity has lost its way or lost the war with Western technology. But unlike Heidegger or unlike Lynn White Jr., Nasser can also see resources for an environmental theological ethic in Christianity. Um, so for him, it's really this, it's this science, it's the technology, which he labels as Faustian. He does not actually name, and you know, in, in many ways, this is like Heidegger and like other, other kinds of more conservative critics of modernity. He does not name capitalism as the essence or at the core of this Faustian science or this Faustian age that we live in. And for me, that's very striking to want to condemn modernity without looking at its political, its, econo- its political economic conditions and circumstances and modes of production and exchange. There's a red flag for me with that. Even in what we saw in Goethe's Faust II from the last episode, Faust's relationship, his sk- Faust's skills as a as a scientist, as a magician. As a thinker, his relationship with Mephistopheles are used to battle the natural elements in constructing the damn settlement and the conclusion of the play. So 
this constitutes through their alliance with the emperor to fight the counter emperor, the fake emperor, like an element of primitive accumulation, like the actual just like getting control of property to be able to build wealth. And another key part of what is going on in Faust 2 is Faust and Mephistopheles, especially Mephistopheles' um, promotion of the fiat currency and speculation and monetary policy as a satanic invention. So even Goethe is able to, you know, Goethe is not, who's not like exactly, you know, a Marxist or anything, um, arguably could not have been, but like is, is not a, a man of the left by any stretch of the imagination, is able to see this connection between the diabolic and, and capitalism in a way that, Syed Hossein Nasser doesn't totally express, even as he wants to Satanize modern Western technology. But I think we can see why the adjective Faustian is so frequently applied to science and technology if we think back to the last few episodes with Goethe's Faust, where arguably the Faust story in Goethe's hands becomes an allegory for the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment, for the for the acquisition of tremendous power over nature and the question of what is to what is to be done with this power and we saw in Faust 2 it's we go from the sort of pursuit of these ideals of desire these like sort of ideal feminized objects and more abstract attachments to poetry and the aesthetic domain and he ends up with using those powers to try to build a society and try to improve the lot of humanity but it's all about using satanic forces to control the natural environment we you can see a critique in, in with what gert is dealing with there in that it's at once a kind of power that can be used to benefit people but it still involves this deal with the devil, still, or at least in the case of Gerd, a bet with the devil, that there is a danger to this power in that's sort of there and present in, in Goethe's imagining. One question I have reading Syed Hossein Nasser and all the other critique, all the other people who want to demonize or Faustianize modern technology is like, when does this modern Faustian age begin. And a few years ago, we, we did an episode where we tied in Sylvia Federici's Caliban and the Witch, her book about the witch hunts in Europe and in Latin America, and their link to the expansion of capital, the expansion of European imperialism, Again, this idea of primary accumulation, the fencing in or enclosure of common property for the sake of capitalist exploitation, the disciplining of the body, the disciplining of the lower classes. And in the witch hunt, she sees the primary accumulation of the female body at the same time as the, the primary accumulation of land enclosure. So if we want to extend this idea of the Faustian age, for her, it begins at the time, ironically, in which sorcerers and witches are being pursued and put to the stake and being terrorized out of their use of traditional practices and gender roles to nurture agrarian, sporadically like pre-Christian forms of life. 
forms of life that are not in, that that have resources for dealing with overweening patriarchal power. The the witch hunt in Federici's imagination is the triumph of patriarchal white power and the imposition of a slave economy abroad as a result of it. So the name of Federici's book is Caliban and the Witch. And this is a reference to William Shakespeare's play, The Tempest. In that play, Caliban is the son of Sycorax, a really powerful witch. But Caliban has been enslaved by the one-time Duke of Milan, Prospero. One of the reasons that Federici goes to this play and the set of images is because Caliban during the period of revolutions in Latin America had been used by the revolutionaries as a symbol of resistance to colonization. She sees a particular irony here because that the, because of using Caliban and not Sycorax as the symbol. She writes, for Caliban could only fight his master by cursing him in the language he had learned from him, thus being dependent in his rebellion on his master's tools. He could also be deceived into believing that his liberation could come through a rape and through the initiative of some opportunistic white proletarians transplanted in the new world whom he worshipped as gods. Sycorax instead, a witch, quote, so strong that she could control the moon, make flows and ebbs, might have taught her son to appreciate the local powers, the land, the waters, the trees, nature's treasuries, and those communal ties that over centuries of suffering have continued to nourish the liberation struggle to this day. And that already haunted, as a promise, Caliban's imagination. And quote, all the quotes. So a few things here. Caliban, as this resistance symbol, well, actually his mother should have been the resistance symbol. His mother is not explicitly present in the play. She is has passed away. And we're under the sway of an entirely different magical force in the person of Prospero. Prospero, who's obsessed with reading and knowledge, cuts a very kind of Faustian character. He wants knowledge in this like early modern way as a method for gaining power over the elements. And he does. He has power over this nature spirit, Ariel, who helps him play all these tricks on people throughout the play. He is on the island because he's was he was forced out by his like power lusting brother he gets the chance to get revenge on his brother to get his daughter Miranda married off by causing a shipwreck on the island where he's been in exile and so i get, I, I find it really interesting that this is a book in the case of Federici about the suppression of magic and the demonization of witches and using that both in Europe and in Latin America as a way of consolidating power over women, of suppressing other forms of knowledge and modes of life. And the main character in the play is himself a sorcerer. He's using magic. And so it suggests that the use of magic per se is not always the problem. It's, it's the way it's feminized and put onto lower status communities and, and women. Um, and controlling birth is crucial in Federici's estimation because the early capitalist economy needed 
a surplus of workers and needed a lot of labor power. And so you needed to be able to prevent birth control. You needed to be able to nurture a full population to be able to sacrifice in the, the bloody altars of the early factories. To sort of think with William Blake a little bit for a second. And so we have this criminalization of witchcraft and its feminization. And meanwhile, we have Prospero in Shakespeare's play, who at the end of the play, after using the magic for all these things, for enslaving Caliban, for getting revenge on his brother or justice, however you want to look at it, renounces his powers. He buries the book. He throws his staff into the water. He's, he releases Ariel. He's going to go back to being normal. But in the exotic landscape of the island, he was a sorcerer. He was dangerous. And one of the things that I learned from Philip Allman's The Devil, A New Biography that I've been reading for years is how in this period, necromancers and learned male scholars could use magic and could see themselves as dominating demons and dominating spirits. But that when the witch hunts came into being, women were represented as not dominating the spirits, but being dominated by the devil. Um, Federici writes about how the devil was in some ways a ambivalent or some ways like sort of an ambiguous force in the life of medieval people as, as having positive qualities and negative qualities. But in, and, and, and it was someone you could actually trick and, and, and like triumph over. But with the witch, with the witch craze, women were, totally dominated by the devil and the devil becomes just this total instantiation of pure evil at the end of the play when prospero has told off his brother and gotten miranda a good match and is ready to be restored to his rightful place in milanese society he deals with caliban who has teamed up with these two drunken sailors from the vessel and it's unclear whether he actually releases Caliban, whether Caliban is still in his service as a slave. Caliban, who for Federici and for these Latin American revolutionaries represented the indigenous population, the mestizo population, represented the racialized subclasses of, of the Spanish colonial world. Again, it, it, you know, it's unclear whether that subject goes free in the end, or whether he comes back with Prospero to Milan as sort of a reformed, docile subject. But whatever the case may be, like Faust, Prospero is using his magical powers to contribute positively, it's seemingly to a more just society, like the unjust or punished, social concord is promoted. He uses his powers to conjure up a play within a play where various Roman, Greco-Roman deities come and celebrate the generative power and pleasures of marriage, but also have a moral lesson about chastity and about monogamy and about the proper use of sexuality. This all really fits with Federici's reading that this is about disciplining sexuality, disciplining the female body. And both Prospero and Faust are kind of these like, like 
they're trying to do productive work, but there's a kind of conservative element of forming these societies that respect the proper hierarchies and maintain what they see as the correct balance of society in a patriarchal society. Prospero renounces his magic and leaves. Faust just dies. <laughs> so um, we can make of that what we will. But I think it's in- interesting to see Prospero as as a different a different iteration of the Faust character. One who has a more like benevolent or at least more benign relationship with spirits. The spirits in the Tempest are 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 just like elemental spirits like Ariel. They aren't demonic. The the presence of the demonic with Sycorax and Caliban are characters who have been defeated, who've been subjugated. Caliban is monstrous in appearance, uh, and Sycorax is gone. So we have almost sort of a like a Faust light or like uh like the rebranding of Sprite into that new, whatever that new soda is in the NBA playoff commercials. I don't know. It, it, it's, it's a happier, more go lucky version of, of the foul story. It's also more comfortably lodged in benevolent patriarchal hierarchies. What I mean, rather than summoning the devil or Mephistopheles, what Prospero does is liberate Ariel from a pine tree. The Ariel, the spirit, this sort of elemental spirit, Ariel, who was put in a pine tree by Sycorax. And at the beginning of the play, Ariel has like produced a storm that has shipwrecked the vessel with with Prospero's brother and his enemies, but also like some other some other key characters. And Ariel's like, well, can I go free now? And Prospero gives her like this thorough tongue lashing and like threatens to put her back in the tree and this sort of thing. Um, but Prospero is is positioned as like the benevolent successor to Sycorax. Sycorax came from Algiers was abandoned by sailors and like was this enslaver of spirits. And so in some ways Prospero is seen as like kind of in the realm of magic like Sycorax, but like a more benevolent user of magic. But I think it's interesting that not only is this the sort of happier-go-lucky version and Prospero, Prospero is, has this sort of, and eventually does release Ariel, but has more power over her and is a liberator in a certain sense, even if he exacts a price for that liberation. He's also never as in danger as Faust is. He's not, he doesn't have anything to lose in this situation. Ariel does. So I said this episode is a bit of a grab bag and I guess what I meant about that, the other sources I'm talking about so far, to me, they kind of flow together more or less readily. I think I would think they come together pretty readily. I heard just totally randomly, though, a podcast from Deutschlandfunk Nova's academic research podcast called Horzal 
um, the sort of the lecture hall. I heard this really great presentation by philosopher, intellectual historian uh, Zidoni Kellerer from the University of Cologne, and it was a it was a lecture about Martin Heidegger. And for people who have studied philosophy, like you're probably somewhat familiar with Martin Heidegger if you've had any sort of the continental experience. Heidegger, and I'm not going to go into like a full like on bio of Heidegger here. But Heidegger is this philosopher who is instrumental in developing the phenomenological tradition uh, as a student of Edmund Husserl's. He is an influence on later existentialist philosophy like Jean-Paul Sartre or Camus. He is this huge deal. And also, I mean, influencing on the deconstruction post-structuralist movement with, with Derrida and, and Foucault. He's a big deal and he's really controversial because he collaborated with the Nazis, joined the Nazi party, and the not you know, obviously the, the Nazis lose World War II. He is temporarily discredited by that for a bit. He slowly rehabilitated and is able to kind of reemerge in not just West German, but also across, like, you know, in France, in, in Switzerland. He gives all these seminars. He exerts, like, a great deal of influence. Like, philosophers like Giorgio Agamben go to his seminars. Like, he is, like, one of, you know, sort of like the grand old man of continental philosophy. Everyone's always like, yeah, he was conservative. But the way he the story was often told was even by his own like jewish german students was that he was naive that he was a dupe that he should have just stuck to you know rambling on about being in plato and aristotle and 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 everything you know um and left politics to others but um what this scholarship by zadoni kellerer shows is that on the contrary, Heidegger's, this legend that Heidegger was, so one, one thing I need to say also is like, it's not only that he was naive, there's also the fact that Heidegger steps down from his chancellorship or rectorship um, a year or so into the Nazi regime and is doing these seminars and lecture courses on Nietzsche. And one of the what she calls like she's like this is like sort of the legend that Heidegger himself produced was that during these classes he is linking he's critiquing modernity he's critiquing the enlightenment and he's arguing that the the nazism is actually the the fullest expression of it and so it's like this idea that Heidegger understood that the nazis were bad news but that really he was he was he knew he made a mistake and that he was secretly crypto critiquing them in his teaching and in his scholarship and that he had turned away from them and pivoted away. What Keller shows is that there's actually through this period and then beyond this period, explicit and coded references, like affirming references to anti-Semitism throughout his corpus what basically happened was nearly 10 years ago, um, the uh, Schwarze Heften or the, the black notebooks of Heidegger's were given an, a critical edition and published. And these showed all kinds of private writings and journals and, and, and also like the, we have his, his correspondence. And these show 
a much deeper commitment to the National Socialist Project and also uh, a real effort to, you know, a refusal to repudiate those views and in fact even a clinging to them beyond. Um, this, this adherence to especially this sort of civilizational, folkish, like, struggle between the German soul or the German essence and and the Jew, what he thought of as the Jewish essence um, persists in what, what she shows as coded language and a, a direct, complete commitment to obscurantism and esoteric teaching. Like, with those for those with ears to hear, they could hear the anti-Semitic currents of what he was doing. So why am I talking about this now? Um, something that she, one of the codes that he uses, one of the references he makes to what he understands to be the alien foreign essence of Judaism or, or Jewishness, um, he refers to the Prinzip der Zerstörung, or the idea of like the like that the Jewish essence is in its roots and its principles an essence of destruction, um, and that what he is doing metaphysically in his teaching and is is the salvation of the German essence over and against this principle of destruction. And when I heard principle of destruction, I thought of principle of, of also of negation of 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 the negative principle, and. You may recall that this is actually how Mephistopheles introduces himself to Faust in Faust One. That he's like, he's the spirit that always says no, that always negates, that that is there to help humanity along to its self destruction. And a bell went off in my mind when I heard that Principe de Strong line to describe the essence of, of Jewishness in Heidegger's Heidegger's writing because it sounded, you know, she talks about him demonizing this foe or having a devilish foe. It's like, well, it's literally the devil in Faust who claims that mantle as his identity. And you may recall also that Heidegger is using his philosophy and his <clears throat> deep commitment to, to metaphysics as a, a war against the Enlightenment project of, of rationalism and the entire paradigm of thinking about reality. If we understand the Faust-Mephistopheles connection to be an allegory or an act, enactment of the Enlightenment, the use of science and technology and power to dominate nature, to dominate other human beings, then this association becomes even stronger with what Heidegger is doing. Because Heidegger also, in associating Jewishness with the principle of destruction, also talks about like over-intellectual abstraction. Uh, the, he, refer, he thinks about Jewishness as, as possessing the spirit of, of revenge, um, which he gets from Nietzsche, from the genealogy of morals. And so in, in Mephistopheles, and especially Faust, we have power and destructive power combined or partnered with over-intellectualism, which is what Faust is so frustrated about with his life in the beginning. So I'm not sure if Heidegger directly intended for this reference to Mephistopheles and Faust, but if Goethe's Faust is an allegory for the Enlightenment and the use of science and power, then there's like this significant resonance. The Enlightenment paradigm is one of Heidegger's bete noirs, responsible for the degradation of the human relationship to being itself in the natural environment. 
like I don't know. It just it 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 doesn't ma- it doesn't really matter to me if he intended to it. I mean, he may have even been like drawing on his own familiarity with Goethe to sort of make these points, but it it really stood out in referring to Jewishness as the old spirit of revenge, which is circulating around the world. This is what he said in the post-war period. He mentioned he's referencing Nietzsche, who thought that the Jewish genius was the genius to use revenge and resentment as the principles of politics. What Heidegger does with this is to say, he uses words like the principle of destruction and the spirit of revenge as these references to, these sort of crypto references to Judaism, to Jewishness. And he understands that he has to lay low in the post-war moment. But he also like seems to have been okay with having his all of his writings published, seemingly anticipating a time when they could be read more freely and understood more openly by by anti-Semites. That he could have this kind of he could be this uh, prophet in the wilderness of the libraries, right? And that the anti-Semitic movement would be able to uh, the, the sort of the folkish nationalist anti-Semite movement would be able to like re-energize his insights. What I find all really striking about this is how Goethe's image of the tragic responsibility of the Enlightenment in the Faust story gets transmogified into this conspiratorial anti-Semitism in in Heidegger, and it to me it and and, and it to me it shows the danger of essentializing or making metaphysical in an abstract way the idea of western technology the idea of the demonic as like this real metaphysical force i think those especially technology the use of technology and power needs to be contextualized in the political economic circumstances and conditions i.e capitalism the demonic the you know the sort of faustian of the demonic needs to be not asserted as this naked reality that's the conspiracy the sort of like conspiracy theory key to all history it needs to be seen as the imposition of hierarchical relations artificial hierarchical relations in different human populations it, it, it that's this is one of the ideas from the womanist appropriation of the demonic is that it's not just like scary exorcist style special effects and and like you know jump cuts and scares it's it's about human arrangements and social arrangements that create these artificial fake ontological gaps between people as real and 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 necessary and i think that's what we get more from learning about it with with federici and to sort of round this out, I, I was reminded of a, a, a passage from Faust II that, that Travis and I discussed last time, but it's the part when Mephistopheles is explaining the origin of the mountains. And they're on top of the, the highest peaks of these mountains. And Mephistopheles is like, this reminds me of when we were in hell. This reminds me of when we got locked up, you know, when God threw the, de- the demons de- into hell. 
and he assures Faust, I, I totally understand why God did that. But they were cramped up in this tight space with all these sulfurous gases. And they begin to cough and cough and violently sneeze. This is Mephistopheles says, Die Teufel fingen sämtlich an zu husten, von oben und von unten aus zu pusten. To, to blow out, to sort of sneeze and blow out. And they're sneezing and coughing below the rocks outward and explode them. And so the lower regions of hell become the great mountains of the world. And the, the lesson that Mephistopheles draws from this is the lowest can be turned into the highest. The lowest spot through the demonic force of things can be turned into the highest. And this is the diabolic art par excellence in Goethe. The demons go from torturous slavery in hell to becoming the princes of the air mentioned in Ephesians 6. We can also see this reversal of this taking the lowest and making the highest in, in the, uh, the sort of critiques of capitalism in Federici and from other sources. The exploitation of the lowest strata of the social hierarchy keep the global economy working and convert wealth into the hands of the richest, the highest in the social hierarchy. And as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the work of Tausik on the devil in Bolivian tin mines or the movie, The Devil's Miner, the documentary about Bolivian silver miners and mineral miners who have devils in their mines. And, and, and like they have statues of devils who are the devils of those mines, El Tio. And I was thinking about how these post-colonial subjects use the devil as a way to represent the as a way to represent the capitalist economy and the neo, neo-colonial arrangements that they live with. But we, they go down into the mines, like they're, they're at the bottom of the social hierarchy and they go down and they produce this wealth for, for, the, for the, the capitalists. By calling these devils of the mines, Tios, the Bolivian miners, in this case, uh, the story told by Basilio Vargas, in, in uh, The Devil's Miner, which is a film uh, directed by Keith Davidson and Richard Ladkani from 2005. Really, totally recommend this. And shout out to Louis Philippe Romer for putting me onto it. There's, Basilio explains that they're not saying uncle. They're saying, they're talking about how the indigenous populations couldn't pronounce the D in Dios, that these were supposed to be terrible gods like dios that were to to compel the the miners to do their work and it really that idea that the devil is equated with a terrible deity rather than your scary racist uncle is i think really emblematic of this point that a good analytical way to sort of deal with the culture of the diabolic is to look at how it is responding to critiquing and also instantiating hierarchies. Like the, the, the evil God is a God who works for the capitalist. And so I think this can be a productive way to think with the Faustian, to think with the Mephistophelian. Um, and I think like, even as we can see interesting critical approaches to colonialism, racism, capitalism in that tradition, I'm just like also like seeing how Heidegger mobilizes that language for his crypto and explicit anti-Semitism. It really shows how unstable and dangerous 
the demonic as as a rhetoric can be also. So that's that's where I'm at. Um, I also wanted to say something about what we're doing upcoming with the podcast. What I what I imagine like what the, the what the project is going forward is to read at least ten novels that focus or represent like really influential or interesting and original views and uses of the devil. So the first one we're going to be doing, the first one we're going to be doing next month is on Frank Peretti's This Present Darkness, a novel that is really influential in articulating the idea of spiritual warfare and territorial domination by demons. So we're going to get into that. Um, and then you'll know, as we know, the other novels that we're going to get into. We're getting some, 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 some you know, familiar, canonical, really standard, great ones. I'm going to try to pull out some ones that maybe are not as, not as normy. There may be some graphic novels in there. We may push the boundaries of what a novel means a little bit. Not that I'm saying that about graphic novels, but, you know, maybe some some other like popular histories that almost have this force of a novel uh, going back to uh, van der Land's point about the historical and the, and the early modern um, but yeah we're excited to be putting out a new sequence to be sort of putting the Faust series to bed at least for the time being and to be rolling into a literary pop culture centric, exploration of the devil in the 20th and 21st century maybe some 19th century too i hope to get back into a monthly rhythm of putting out podcasts and i know like compared to all kinds of other podcasts that's a slower rhythm but like i don't know i think slow is cool you know i i I, i'm i'm not into fast fashion man i'm not into ultra rapid consumption i think these can take a while to get made. I think a, a month goes really fast. I'm just getting older. A month just go, flies by. So anyway, yeah, I mean, I think the way the rhythm we're going to be in, the podcast is not going to be your daily crutch to deal with, like, the crushing realities of of existence the way I use sports or basketball podcasts to sort of just, like, <laughs> to, to fall asleep and to get through doing the dishes we're not going to have enough to to provide that kind of a service, but I think you can think of this as like sort of getting a nice letter in the mail every month or, or getting a monthly magazine or something like that. It's, it's, it's going to be a little bit different, but I hope all the more special for it. So thanks so much for listening. It's great to be back talking to you and we will see you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Board, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.